if you're that kind of person and you've got the capital and you're a great negotiator, you've got great people skills, you, you could probably be a successful flipper, but it, it's like a job, right? If you're not flipping, you're not making money. And that's why I prefer income property because you just make money every month. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1240-1240. Thank you for joining us today. We are going to talk about super thinking. And we've got the founder of DuckDuckGo, the search engine, on the show today. This is a 10th episode show. And when I was in Europe, I finished his book called Super Thinking, the Big Book of Mental Models. It is excellent. And I recommend it. So check that out. I think you'll enjoy his interview today. But first, I've got Adam here with me. And Adam wants to talk about how he is uh, getting preyed upon to sell his properties, right, Adam? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I don't know about everybody else, but since we've purchased our properties, we've been getting phone calls and everything from people who want to buy our properties. And you were mentioning your mom. I I get them all the time. My mom gets them all the time, yeah. Yeah. And at first, I just hung up on them or didn't answer their texts because I figured, hey, you know, go away. But then recently, I've started answering them because I think, hey, you know, maybe they're interested. But I got one the other day that struck me as something that we as investors need to think about and change our mindset. And what it was is this this person, uh, his name is, or their name is Orlando. I don't know if that's male or female, but I'm just going to say male for now. And he said, I'm reaching out to see if you're the owner of the property. If so, are you interested in selling? And for the record, we're not, but hey, why not? And I said, how much are you offering? And his response is 20000 and it's a sight unseen offer. <laughs> <laughs> and of course your property is worth way more than 20 grand. Yeah. And I replied I said absolutely not. This is a rehab cash flowing rental. And they said, "Okay, what's the lowest amount that you would take?" which I hate as I an offering. They say, "What's the lowest you'll take?" I'm not yeah. going to tell you that. Right. And I said, "Probably this amount would get it done." And then this is the comment that drove me up a wall. He said, "Definitely can't pay that much for the home." I'm an investor, so of course I would have to get it at a discounted price. How much is it rented for? And my response to him was, investors don't need to get it at a discounted price. They need to get a fair price. The house is rented for this much, so 1% of what we're asking. And that was the the basic, and he didn't really respond after that. But that was the important mindset that I feel like we as investors need to get rid of. As investors, you don't have to get it at the discounted price, as long as, as the commandment says, it makes sense the day you buy it, 
you're probably not getting hosed on the deal. Right, right. Well, you know, investors, and listen, I do this to myself all the time. People tell me I have the gift of being a good negotiator. And sometimes I negotiate myself right out of the deal. (laughs) So don't read too many books on negotiation or become a good negotiator because, and I'm not talking about properties, I'm talking about everything in life, you know, because People that try to get things at a good deal, so to speak, or at a discount, usually don't get anything at all, okay? That's <laughs> that's the reality of it. I mean, look, occasionally we all get a good deal on something, no question about it. But if your mindset is that you've got to buy everything at a discount, that you've got to be a bottom feeder, that you've got to win in the deal, and you don't as the saying goes, leave a little meat on the bone for the other party, you're not going to do any deals. I mean, you might do one, but it'll be a hard fought deal. It'll be a hard one deal. You know, if you want to do business, right, you got to come to the marketplace thinking about a win-win deal. Mm -hmm. Granted, we all get a little better deal sometimes. Uh, Occasionally, you know, you get that once in a lifetime great deal. But this is not the reality of things. We've talked a lot about the Warren Buffett mentality over the years. And, you know, I have this like love-hate relationship with Warren Buffett. I think he's a bit of a hypocrite for sure. You know, I'm, I'm not into the stock market. And, you know, there's a lot of misnomers about what he says, does, thinks, et cetera. But his concept is, that the deal, as long as it's a solid deal going in, he knows that all he has to do is wait a couple years and it becomes a really good deal. You don't necessarily get the good deal upon signing the contract. You get the good deal by waiting a couple of years after you sign the contract. Then the deal becomes very good if you bought it as a solid deal. And it might have been a fair price had the house just been like, a slab with a couple of falling pieces of wood off it. But once they hear this is a rehab property that's cash flowing, you can't expect to get something like that at a low, low price. Now, our local market specialists, they buy houses at what you might consider a discount, but in reality, they're not because they have to go in and dump a bunch of money in. So it's kind of one of those things that if you want quality, you're probably going to have to pay for quality. Yeah, good point. And, you know, it's interesting because probably everybody listening who is a client of ours, they uh, have purchased properties and they're receiving all the famous yellow postcards, right? I I don't see those as much now, but I mean, my mailbox is full of these things every month, okay? Letters, and and it's amazing how sophisticated these guys are getting. My mom, uh, just the other day, she showed me one that she got. She says, Jason, This really impressed me, this letter I got, or this flyer I got, offering to buy one of my houses. And she shows it to me, and she says, look, it had a picture of the house on the front. And I opened the flyer, and, you know, it just says, we want to buy your house. But it really made me pay attention, because there was a picture of my house on it. And so these are these companies that do um, variable printing. And so it'll basically pull a database from Google Street View, for example, put a picture of the house on it, and then personalize the mailer, you know, dear Adam, right, for example, or dear Jason, and, uh, you know, do you want to sell your house at 123 Elm Street? People will pay attention to that because it's big really a picture stalking. of their real house. It's big data, exactly, <laughs> big data, yeah. House stocking. House stocking, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, good stuff. Any other thoughts or lessons? You know, I was just texting 
with one of those people the other day that was bugging me to sell one of my properties. And it's kind of entertaining to <laughs> It really is. See, we actually had somebody call me the other day to see if we were interested in selling. And they asked how much we would want for the house. And my response made them hang up the phone. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny. You know, don't be too anxious to sell. Try and keep your investments. Uh, you know, do 1031 exchanges. Beware of predatory investors out there and don't fall for it, folks, obviously. And uh, join us for our upcoming cruise. We can't go to Cuba because the federal government shut us down. So unfortunately, it's not going to be Cuba. But we've got something that is going to be even better, much more luxurious, better cruise line, better ship. And that is a fall foliage cruise uh, leaving out of New York in October. Go to jasonhartman.com slash cruise. It's on a beautiful, beautiful ship, Princess Cruise Lines. We would love to have guests join us. That'll be a venture. Alliance cruise, but we always have some guests come. So uh, that's why I'm inviting uh, the listeners who are interested. The one thing I do have to tell you is prices for this cruise are not guaranteed because it, it was booked short notice because we had to make the change. So if you're interested in uh, cruising with me and the rest of our folks for a week, New England, Canada, fall foliage, absolutely beautiful, stunning. I've seen the fall foliage before. I love that time of year. It's just uh, just a beautiful time on uh, Princess Cruise Lines. Join us. Go to jasonhartman.com slash cruise. And Adam, without further ado, let's get to our guest today. You're really going to enjoy this interview as a 10th episode. And Adam, let's... Duck, duck, go to the episode. <laughs> duck, duck, go. Good stuff. Here we go. It's my pleasure to welcome Gabriel Weinberg to the show. He is the founder and CEO of the multi-billion search internet privacy company, DuckDuckGo. I'm sure many of you use it. It's a great product. And the number one best-selling author of Traction, How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Customer Growth, and the new book, Super Thinking, The Big Book of Mental Models. Gabriel, welcome. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Give our listeners a sense of geography. Where are you located? I am outside Philadelphia in the United States. Fantastic. Is that where DuckDuckGo is located, by the way? So it's where I'm located, uh -huh. but um, DuckDuckGo is a distributed company. So we actually have team members scattered across the whole world. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Good stuff. I, I was thinking you were going to say you were in Silicon Valley. <laughs> like, nope. <laughs> it's too cliche. Don't think that, right? Well, good stuff. Super thinking. This is something that I'm guessing you have employed very well, and congratulations on your success. What is super thinking? So super thinking, the subtitle is The Big Book of Mental Models. So the next question is, what the hell is a mental model, right? Mm -hmm. sure. Mental model is a fancy word for concept. And, you know, we have concepts in every area of life. I was a physics major, so there were tons of physics concepts, most of which, you know, quantum mechanics and things which are not relevant to anyone outside of physics, but some really are. So, for example, the concept of critical mass came from physics and kind of it's the nuclear material needed for a nuclear bomb, but it's really useful outside of physics in investing in products and entrepreneurship. A product or an idea can have critical mass. And once you know something can have critical mass or critical mass applies as a concept to that business or investing concept, then you can think at strategic levels about it. You can say, well, how can I achieve critical mass for that? Or how can I achieve it faster? 
And so what mental models are, these broad mental models, is there's a list of about 300 of them that we've enumerated. And if you can kind of know them and internalize them, you can be a much better strategic decision maker. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 300 mental models, though, that's uh, a lot to know, isn't it? It sounds scary, right? But the reality is that they're very interrelated. And so what we ended up doing is describing them through nine thematic narrative chapters. And so, for example, the first chapter is all about biases. So all the biases, which is very similar, comes up a lot in investing, like confirmation bias and availability bias, mm -hmm. and all as a theme of how to like get around the bad parts of your intuition. And then there's like unintended consequences and spending your time wisely. So there are a lot, but they're very interrelated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there are so many of these biases, and we don't even realize how they run us, right, Gabriel? I mean, uh, one of my favorites, and <laughs> I know it runs me, is the sunk cost bias, right? You know, you put all this effort or money into a deal and you just should let it go at some point, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, just to put some words in that, the sunk cost is, let's say you go to a movie and you've already paid for the ticket and you're 10 minutes in and it is a, it is Terrible. the worst. Terrible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so you're like, I got to walk out of there. That's what the rational move to be. But most people don't walk out because they're like, I just bought this ticket. I have to make my money's worth. But the reality is you already spent the money. And so that happens a lot in investing. It goes with another mental model called loss aversion, where people are much uh, more afraid of losing what they already have than they are necessarily gaining. And what happens as that operationalizes is say you bought something like a stock and you want to wait until, and it goes down, and you just wait and wait until it crosses that original price just to make you feel like you got a gain. Right. But in reality, you probably should sell it earlier if it's not worth that much. Right. That really relates to like opportunity cost, doesn't it? Because I like to talk a lot about how you can't hear the dogs that don't bark and the the question of compared to what, right? We We never really evaluate what is unseen. Or, you know, what we might have gained had we done something else and not had all this sunk cost into whatever that deal was, right? Yeah. Opportunity cost is one of these models that really was the motivator for writing the book in the first place. Mm, good. And what happened was, is I was trying to chain executives at the company I, I founded, DuckDuckGo. And I started realizing that, you know, executives, their main role, and the same is true if you're running your own company or running your own investments, is to make good decisions. And then I tried to do introspection into what makes good decisions and came upon the realization that you really need to know all these different models. But what really was the kind of epiphany moment for me was all these people coming up to me and saying, we've got to do this project. It is the most important project. Like, here are all the reasons why we should do it. And I kept finding myself saying back to them, okay, I can see why your product's important, but is it more important than all these other projects we need to do? And if you're arguing for we should do X, you really need to be arguing for we should do X instead of Y and Z. And that's exactly what opportunity cost is. Okay, so I kind of took you down that track. And, um, you know, I think that's a good one uh, for sure. But there are 300 of these, these mental models. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, which are the biggies, I guess? You want maybe? Me to highlight some yeah, for you? Yeah, highlight the so, ones that are affecting most of us, right? I mean, opportunity cost, and I want to be clear, it's like every one of these models, like opportunity cost comes from economics, right? Mm -hmm. And they come from a specific discipline, but they're really useful outside of it. That's where the metaphorical 
value really comes from, um, that you can apply this across your entire life effort for really any decision. Mm-hmm. But there are a few, like you said, that really, really carry more weight than some of the others. One that's counterintuitive that I like to bring up is called forcing function. And what this is, is anything that is really forcing you to critically evaluate things. Because ultimately, what a lot of this comes down to is your intuition can be bad, and you want a place where you can check it really systematically. And so a forcing function helps you do that. Now, at a company, what that means for DuckDuckGo is we have, for every project, we have a kickoff call, we have postmortems where we ask what went well and what didn't go well, we have weekly updates that need to be written for every project. And these are built into the calendar and they literally force people to take a step back and think critically about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, in a personal level, that could be like every week I evaluate my investments or every week I go to the gym or, you know, I look at my budget or whatever it is, but it's already set aside by default. Okay. So really it's a matter of scheduling, right? Scheduling to constantly evaluate progress on something? Yeah, that's right. It's related to something called the default effect, which is you basically do what the default is generally. Mm-hmm. And a good example of this is organ donation rates across different countries. Right. Some countries have default opt-in to organ donation and some have default opt-out where you have to opt actually in, opt-in. Right. If you look at the rates across countries, the ones that's default opt-in are like 90%. And the ones that are default opt-out are like 20, 30%. Mm-hmm. So if you have a default that is already into your calendar, then you're going to have that forcing function to think critically every single week. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't have that default, you might wait months before you actually think critically. And you know, you're going to waste your time, you're going to waste your money, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good, good. What else? Tell us about some others. Yeah, the, the default effect. That's good. By the way, just to comment on that, it seems like a lot of subscription businesses and SaaS-based services are benefiting huge from the default effect, right? Because everything's on auto pay and they just keep renewing you, keep renewing you. And a lot of people, they kind of don't pay attention to it uh, very much, do they? That's right. Yeah. I mean, all of these can also be used almost adversarially against you, you know, like all your biases. There's a whole set of models that we cover called influence models that do that. Um, And they're things like reciprocity, where Mm -hmm. if somebody gives you something, you're much more likely to to have an innate feeling like you want to return that favor. For example, like high profile ticket item sales folks will give you free concert tickets or Mm -hmm. uh, nonprofits will send you free address labels. Mm -hmm. It's all in the idea that then you're much more likely to return the favor. And there are lots of other influences models like that, like social proof, and just you tend to want to agree with people that you like. So then people try to relate to you on a more social level. Um, you know, like you like the same sports teams and stuff like that. And similar to regular biases like confirmation bias and availability bias, you want to be aware of these different ways that people or companies are trying to influence you. And like you said, default settings are a great one. You know, mm-hmm. like I run a privacy company. You can't get better examples than this than privacy settings. Oh, yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> they're like five menus down in some, right. you know, you never some see it. Nobody reads it. Settings. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Switching gears, like a, there, there's a whole set of models around kind of getting better at skills and coaching. Mm-hmm. And a central one is called deliberate practice. Okay. And it was pioneered by a gentleman named Anders Ericsson who studied um, professional athletes and experts uh, across academia and musicians. And 
what he found at the core are these people practice this one form of practice, which he called deliberate practice, where it's really simple. You really try to practice one skill out of your comfort zone a little bit. And at the same time, you get expert feedback, real-time feedback as to kind of what you're doing wrong. So you don't want to go way outside your comfort zone because then you can't really relate it to what you're doing wrong. But you want to go a little bit and have that kind of coaching session or a mentor that helps you kind of get better at it. And if you can set this up in your life for whatever it is you're trying to do, get better at, whether it's investing or public speaking or coding or anything, like that's the fastest way to kind of climb that skill ladder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. You talk right at the beginning of the book about being less wrong. Um, What does that mean? Well, there's this mental model that comes from tennis called unforced errors. And mm-hmm. so are you a tennis player by chance? I, guess uh, I, I used to be. Uh, I really don't do it too much anymore, but uh, I Me like too. tennis. I'm, I'm a fan. Older. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, there's different errors you can make while playing tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. A lot of errors people think when they look at watch a sport is like the other player made a really good ball that was hard to return. But it turns out a lot of errors in tennis are what they call unforced errors, where the opponent didn't force you to make an error at all. You just hit it into the net yourself or double faulted where you hit in the net when you serve. And unforced errors can theoretically be completely avoided. And so being less wrong is really about learning these models to help you predict how you might end up being wrong and then avoiding those things. And it's almost like a checklist of stupid mistakes or anti-patterns that you can fall into. A good example is unintended consequences. So you see this all the time now with companies like Facebook kind of raising their hand and saying, uh, we could have never predicted that, you know, people were going to use our system to manipulate people or this or that was going to go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but the reality is, is you actually can predict these things mm-hmm. if you kind of know the models around it. And I'll give you a silly example, but one that comes up a lot, a model called the Streisand effect. Mm-hmm. And this is actually from uh, the actress Barbara Streisand is where it got its name. Sure. She had a mansion and um, she mm-hmm. didn't want in Malibu, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They want to like see it, you know, and right. see how kind of ostentatious it was. And a photographer took a picture and put it on their website. Yep. No one had downloaded this thing. And then she sued the photographer. And all of a sudden, it's a front page news story. Right. And now everyone is seeing it. <laughs> right. Sometimes it's better to just let it go, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's so hard to do, right? But this is kind of the idea of this whole thing is once you know that concept and something comes along and you're like, oh, I made a mistake. I put that out there on the internet. You got to stop and think, well, if I try to delete the post or comment on it or sue them, is that going to draw more attention to it? Right. And oftentimes it does. Yeah. And so that's the kind of question you got to ask yourself. And I agree with you completely. That law of unintended consequences, certainly. But it's very hard to evaluate. For example, how did Barbara Streisand know that she did, you know, appear to be such a hypocrite, right? In, in that case, yeah, like no one paid attention to the picture of her house from the drone, but then everybody did when she, you know, when she sues the guy, you know, like, how do you, those are big ifs. You just never really know. I mean, yes, it would have been something to consider for sure. And maybe she did even consider it, but, you know, never knew the magnitude or virality of it. Right. You are absolutely right. That's why it's called kind of being less wrong. Cause you can't be absolutely right all the time. Right. A lot of this stuff, is around uncertainty. And that is actually why it's very hard to do this over time is it's it's your really weighing probabilities, right? But to really help you with that is kind of looking at history. And so I think that one 
in particular, like you can't really say because there's no counterfactual. Another mental model that's really good is thinking about thought experiments and like what could have happened, you know. Mm -hmm. But in that case, there's a long history of celebrities suing people that look like they're under them in some way financially. Right. Sure. And it generally doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so in that one, I think the probability was probably decently high that you might want to avoid it. In other ones, it's very, you know, it's harder to say and you have to make a call. Right. And there's um, another bias called hindsight bias mm -hmm. where it's easy to think if things gone well, it's because of your awesome decisions. <laughs> but if it things gone poorly, you should have done something better only in hindsight, right? Mm -hmm. And one way I think to be kind of more objective about that, and a lot of these mental models in terms of operating them, is you kind of want to involve other people. It's hard to do yourself, especially on your own decisions. And so that could take the form of a colleague, it could take the form of a spouse, it could take the form of a coach, but trying to get a little more objective about it. Yeah, definitely. You talk about, uh, well, what's interesting, just one more comment on the Streisand uh, thing. It's interesting, in a way, a rich and famous celebrity almost has, in that kind of situation, less power or fewer rights than an obscure person who doesn't have a bunch of money, right? Because if it were the other way around, the photographer could have stewed Barbara Streisand and maybe no one would have cared, right? You know, but, yeah, you're but absolutely because right. it's mean, her doing yeah. it, you know, and listen, I'm not defending Barbara Streisand, but <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right. I yeah. mean, you're right in two respects. I mean, you're literally right in the sense that there are literally laws that are less for public figures, right? Right. Like public figures have less privacy rights in the U S underneath right. their law, yep. but also companies have this all the time. It's like big companies can't play a victim card very easily, you know, right, yeah. because it, it's not fair. They're big and powerful. Right. And so I think recognizing your place is definitely important to like evaluate in all these situations. Yeah. Very, very important. That's one of the, one of the important uh, things you talk about flexing your market power. That's in, in fact, your last chapter in the book. Tell us about that. Yeah. This is all in the realm of kind of getting something that has a sustainable competitive advantage. And so by that, I mean, is something like arbitrage where you're just, you know, finding a low price here and selling it there um, in another market. Those kind of opportunities are really easy to get into and so don't last very long. And generally, like people who do that business, say, on eBay or whatnot, they have to keep cycling it over and over and over again. Whereas someone or some business who has a sustainable competitive advantage, once they kind of find that advantage, they can persist for decades even and make profits. And the key to doing that is this idea of market power. Market power is really just the ability to charge higher prices. But if you think about it from a personal perspective, we have a lot of illustrations in the book, and this is one of my favorites. It's from the movie Taken, if you're familiar with that. I remember it, yeah. Where Liam Nielsen says, Liam Neeson says, I have a unique set of skills, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's basically what market power is. If you're somebody with a unique set of skills, then you can go sell those skills in the marketplace and basically demand your price or the same if you're a company and you have a unique differentiated product that people want. Whereas if you have a commodity product or you are a person that has only commodity skills, the market tells you what the price is. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to get that market power via differentiation is kind of a key set of mental models. And one of the ones at its center that kind of Peter Thiel has explained really well, actually there's kind of two. One is this notion of a secret where something that you believe is true that other people or society in general doesn't realize it's true yet. It's gonna, and it often takes a while for that to propagate. If you know one of these secrets, 
you can often use it to have market power. And similarly, there's another matrix by a venture capitalist, Andy Radcliffe, who talks about uh, contrarian versus consensus bets. And this is true in investing, but it's also true in entrepreneurship. To really get outsized returns, you need to make a bet on the future, kind of based on a secret that is different than everyone else is betting on. Because if you bet the same as everybody else, you're never going to get outsized returns because everyone else needs to get a return too. So the way to get a real outsized return is to bet on something that's contrarian and be right. Okay, but is that really such an aha? I mean, be a contrarian, take a risk. And if you're right, you're going to score big time. That's like just taking the long shot, right? Or is there more to it? Am I not getting it? Uh, and, exactly. I, and, and by the way, before you answer, maybe we'll take that into your own business experience. When was DuckDuckGo founded? 2008. And I think it's a good example. Yeah. Right? I, and here's the example I was going to make out of it. The secret is that everybody was just, and this may not be the one you were going to say, but it, it's one I thought of as you were talking. Everyone was just going along with the standard thing and their privacies being abused. And, you know, Big Brother Google is, you know, looking over their shoulder all the time, et cetera. Now, Google's not that old, but, you know, right around the same time, I guess. You know, the, it's like maybe you brought to the fore, you brought some attention to this thing of, look, your privacy is being abused and we're here to fix that. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> yeah, there were a couple secrets embedded in it. Uh -huh. One is that one, and that's exactly right, is that one of the things that I realized was that privacy was not only being violated, but it was being violated more and more over time, right? Mm -hmm. Ads were getting creepier and creepier, and right. there was no real counterbalancing effect. And that ultimately, people were going to wake up to all the privacy harms and want an alternative. And so it one of the problem with you know, doing this and making contrarian bets and having secrets is it's really hard to time, right? So that was 2008. It didn't even really become more a bigger thing in terms of privacy awareness until 2013 when the Snowden revelations happened. And that was more focused on government surveillance. And then corporate surveillance didn't really become huge in the mainstream until 2018 when Cambridge Analytica happened. So we're talking 10 years after mm -hmm. the founding, right? right? Yeah. And that's part of, that's the hard part with some of this differentiation and market power. But if you can kind of stay around and you're right, then you need to have kind of validation. And we talk about de-risking and running experiments. But if you can do that, then you can be in the right place. It seems like you're in the right place at the right time, right? Yeah, very interesting. You, you can't be too early. You know, no prophet is ever revered in his own time or, or town, as the old saying goes, right? Very good. Wrap it up with any closing thoughts, maybe any questions I didn't ask you, and uh, give out your website too, Gabriel. Well, it's at superthinking.com. But um, one metaphor that might be useful, which we kind of use the introduction, is arithmetic, actually. If you think back to when you learned arithmetic, you know, you start out counting and then you do addition, Right. And then you eventually learn multiplication and division. Now, multiplication and division are actually just different modes of addition. Because if you do like two times four, it's just two plus two plus two plus two. But once you know multiplication, and especially if you have a calculator, you don't go back to addition. So if you're like 547 times 13, you don't just do 547 and add it 13 times. You just do 547 times 13. And that's the kind of the idea with mental models is like once you have the name and the concept, you can skip the addition step and go right to multiplication. So you can just do this higher level kind of analysis and thinking of problems just much quicker. Yeah, very good. Very good.
your website? Superthinking.com. I'm on Twitter at Yegg, Y-E-G-G. And what does that stand for? Just out of curiosity, where that Twitter <laughs> handle come from? That's your Skype. <laughs> Good yeah. question. Yeah. yeah. It stands for nothing. It is a um, word, actually. Uh-huh. It was used in the 1920s in kind of the gangster movement. And the Yegman was the safe cracker of like the gang. Ah. Kind of bring in the Yegman to help crack the safe open. Very good. Well, that's hopefully that's what we've done today with uh, Mental Models. This is a fantastic book. Love to have you back on the show sometime to talk about traction. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional, and we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.